Hey everybody and welcome to the Fathoming Heavy Podcast. My name is Andrew and today my guest is guitarist Craig Lucicero. Most of you probably know Craig as a guitar player in Bay Area thrash metal band Forbidden. Uh, he's done a lot of other things. He's got a new project called Dress the Dead. But it became pretty clear as we were recording this episode that this episode is going to focus on Forbidden. Uh, we are going to do a part two and we will focus on sort of the end of Forbidden uh, up through what he's doing today with Dress the Dead and some other things. There's a lot that we glossed over here, so we'll get into some of the detail next time. This is really about how he how he started Forbidden, how, how his relationship with Rob Flynn um, was kind of a, a turning point in his life, and then all of the things that happened afterwards. We go into a lot of detail. There's a lot of stories. There are a lot of names. Hopefully, if you're listening, um, you've got some idea of what we're talking about, um, because this is this is some really, really special stuff that he's sharing here. Um, and I was honored to actually have him come over and sit down and uh, just talk after all of these years. You know, I used to see Forbidden quite a bit in the 80s. I remember buying the Forbidden Evil album uh, in December of 1988. So that was, you know, 30 years ago, exactly. And, you know, that that music thrash metal was so important to me during my teenage years that it's tough for me to go back to it and see it as something fresh and vibrant today. Um, I don't pay a lot of attention to what a lot of the bands, the thrash metal bands from the Bay, from the 80s that got back together. I don't pay a lot of attention today, honestly, to what they're doing um, because it was so much rooted in a time and a place for me. Uh, Forbidden is the one is the one exception to that, I think, or the biggest exception. Uh, there's something that is timeless and very vibrant, even about their earliest music, that I continue to go back to year after year, decade after decade. Um, and I thought that their record in 2010, Omega Wave, uh, was just um, above and beyond, um, just absolutely stellar and a standout. And it was great to be able to re-experience them specifically a few more times uh, back in the early 2010s. So I hope that you will enjoy this one. Uh, I really thank Craig for taking the time to come out. And I thank him in advance for taking the time to come out for episode two. Check out what he's doing today, Dress the Dead. He's recently launched a Forbidden page where they're selling official Forbidden merch and, and other things, so check that out for sure. There'll be a link to that in my show notes. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Fathoming Heavy, fathomingheavy at gmail.com. If you like what you're hearing, please go to Apple Podcasts, leave a rating. That helps a lot. Tell your friends, spread the word, and I appreciate you listening. All right, enough of this. Let's do it. problem. Um, I appreciate it. And I have a lot of history with you. Okay. Um, you know, we've met a handful of times over the years and we ran into each other a couple weeks ago, right. which kind of prompted this sit down today. But um, I saw Forbidden Evil play for the first time in December of, there you go. The original demo. I'm wearing the shirt right now. You can't see this. <laughs> 
I have the original demo. I bought it at the show, Forbidden Evil opened for Testament. It was a curfew show at the Stone. December of 97, I won 87. tickets. 87, sorry. Yeah, we're, yeah. Going, we're going decades back. Yeah, now. we're going decades back. Yeah, I was 14 and 15. I had just turned 15 and I won tickets on KFJC. I had to answer a question. I can't remember what the question was, but it had to do with who was singing for Testament and where did he come from and who did he replace and what, ha- you know, that whole Exodus legacy Testament. Thing. Right, right, right. So, um, but I had heard Forbidden Evil prior to that on the Eastern Front Live at Ruthie's compilation. Yes. Right? Yeah, very, very raw version, yeah. And that was a really important compilation for me because that that's that's where I heard Death Angel and Legacy and all of those bands for the first time. Violence, you know, with, right. with, the, with the other singer. Um, all of those bands. And so that was kind of a, a gateway for me having, you know, grown up with Metallica and those bands, you know, into the next the next generation, what they sort of call the second generation. Yeah. Yep, that's and what it so was. You guys were very much a part of that for me and a very much a part of my cutting my teeth in, in thrash metal. Right. Um, and for those years that I was going to shows regularly, which was for most of high school, you know, I saw you guys, I don't know, countless times. And I think the last time that I saw you it may have been one time later in the 90s, but I saw you open for Death Angel at the Warfield. That was actually 1990. 90, yeah. And that was my 21st birthday. Okay. Do you remember? <laughs> it's a funny story. I, I mean, I, I don't know why I remember this, but you were up there and you were playing, and uh, you had much, much more hair then, and you were swinging your hair, and, and you spit. And it got caught in my hair? It got caught in your that hair. That was a daily occurrence for me. And you laughed. And I was standing back there and watching you laugh, and then I started laughing. And I don't know why I remember that all these years later. You know, I was kind of a, a gross... Uh, I mean, that was the end of my... You know, it was my 21st birthday, mm-hmm. so... But, yeah, I, uh, I mean, in those days, I mean, I don't know where to begin, because you just went through so much history, but I'll just go to that particular show. And we'll we'll jump back. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, know, you just went through a lot. And, yeah. Uh, but, you know, that particular show was like a blur to me, and... Um, you know, I mean, that was the only time I played the Warfield. Yeah. You know, I played the Fillmore since. I played the, you know, all the other bigger theaters since then. But it's the, you know, it's prestige. But yeah, we were, uh, we were really on point at that point. You know, at that point, not to be redundant, we, at that stage. But uh, you know, I used to do things like that. I used to spit up in the air and 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 have it land wherever it landed. I didn't care. You know, <laughs> people, were like, oh, it's disgusting and. You know, but part of the thing was, and the reason why I get so much, uh, I'd spit so much, is because I was, uh, at the time, n- nobody on planet Earth was circle banging as hard as I was. Mm. I mean, this at that point in history, like, I was, my gravity was pushing uh, mucus up to the top of my head, <laughs> and I had to get rid of it. Because that's the thing about circle banging, uh, you know, it. I did it because it saved my neck. If you go straight ahead, a whole bunch of you know, people walking around in traction, you right. know, like there's like, oh, like all my friends and bands that, you know, like Gary Holtz, like, you know, he's he's hating it, man. Like he's if you talk to him about how bad his back is and, you know, he's like, oh, f- you know, it's fucking killing me, man. You know, so like I, I figured out a long time ago, go with gravity, yeah. pick a side, yeah. go one direction, you know. So I went clockwise for me, which is counterclockwise for you. And uh, that was my thing. So I, I used to have to get rid of it. And it was either going to be on the floor or it was going to be up in the air. I just didn't care, or out in the audience. I mean, 
But the thing is, no one ever spit on me, uh. which is crazy because I deserve to be hacked <laughs> upon over the years. I, All those I think, tours of Europe, I mean, the European yeah, fans are like, you know, like, known for that. The worst reaction we ever got was uh, in, in L.A. I can't remember which city it was. It was at the Country Club and we had to open. We got put on the Death Dark Angel show because Death canceled because they didn't want to open for Dark Angel. Mm. It was back when Chuck was pretty emotional, you know. And we got put on that show, and it wasn't really... Only a few people knew that Forbidden was going to be on it. So when we went boom and walked out on stage, people were like, oh. And that was kind of like the 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 worst initial reaction that turned into a good one yeah. that we'd ever yeah. experienced. Right. Just, just like, well, who's this? You know, you had to win them over. We had to win them over. Yeah. It was really before Forbidden. Had, had, I don't even think Ultimate Revenge was out yet. Okay. You know, Forbidden Evil might have just been released. Okay. Yeah, we were just catching on. So how did it start for you? You grew up in the Bay Area. How did you get into how did well, you get into heavy music? Let's back this up. Let's beep beep. <laughs> I didn't grow up in the Bay Area. I grew up in Las Vegas. Okay. Okay. Right. I, I I was uh, born a poor black child. No, just clearly. Kidding. Yeah, everyone says that, right? No, I was born uh, to a family of book smart. It, I was like, well, first of all, I wasn't born into the family. I was adopted at, at seven months. Okay, and I, I, all I know about my original family is that I'm half Italian and half Mohawk. Mm. So that's really all I, it's on my birth certificate and that's really all I know. And uh, my, my dad was a, a history, uh, prof- well he turned into a history professor and doctorate at UNLV. Okay. And uh, he's since, long since passed away in the early 90s, like 91 or 92, I can't remember exactly. And my mom was, uh, worked at the health department, was president of the League of Women Voters in the 70s of Nevada, all Nevada. And she went on to work at the power company. They got divorced, blah, blah, blah. My brother's an architect, a pure straight-A student. I am like the blackest of sheep. You know, like <laughs> I don't... And I get along with all of them. My family doesn't have a lot of drama. We all say we're all a little weird, but no one fights. You know, we're not, not a lot of drama. They're great people. But I didn't fit into their mold at all. I was, you know, born liking, gravitating towards music more so than anything they listened to. I just went straight towards music and they had, you know, my parents were only into like, you know, the Beatles and common stuff, Simon and Garfunkel, classical music, Pete Seeger, like boring. But the Beatles I gravitated towards out of all that, I really loved them. And my brother really was into uh, ELO and Queen and Bowie, you know, he was more into that kind of stuff. So, so we're talking 70s. Towards, yeah, yeah. This is all, this is, I was born in 69. So, okay. Right. You know, so this is all my background until I was introduced to different friends who had older brothers that listened to heavier music. But the first, my first real recollection of heavy was listening to Helter Skelter off the White Album by mm-hmm. the Beatles. And I said, well, I like that better than. All back then I did, you know. Since then I'd be, I'd, they're still my favorite band. But I mean, back then, you know, that was my introduction to like the hinges flying off right. and right. things can be out of control and aggressive. And and that was how I went into, you know, my head first into all what I really loved about rock and metal. And you know, then I heard stuff like I think ACDC and. Um, what a real funny story was, and I don't remember who this was to this day, but my mom took me over to a friend, one of her friend's houses, and she had a daughter that wanted me to listen to this Hawaiian album, right? 
and her brother comes in looking straight out of that 70s show with his friend and looking back at it they were definitely high as a kite and he's all what the fuck are you playing him what is this shit he's all you gotta listen to this and he just like did the rip rip the needle off (laughs) threw this thing down and I remember I don't know who this was I still can't remember who this was but I just remember this song I gotta go to hell and I just I was like that's awesome and then she thought, oh, my God. And she, like, she walked out of the room, and I was just like sitting there <laughs> listening to that. I don't remember. And I might not have heard it right. It might have been some other song, but that's how it reverberated in my head. Yeah. So these are like my influences that kind of just you know, made me pull towards liking heavier stuff. I didn't play guitar. I didn't play anything uh, throughout my childhood. My parents were really hesitant on uh, getting me an instrument. And when they got divorced, we didn't have a lot of money. Things were separated. Uh, you know, they were separated and drums were too loud. Bass was going to carry too far. I didn't even, you know, get a guitar until I moved to the Bay Area. So were they worried about like you, um, were they worried about sort of heavy metal culture and the myths no, surrounding that and you entering into that? Or Pretty liberal. Okay. Pretty liberal in that way. They didn't really think about it. You know, I mean, my, there's some funny things, but I'll just say that I didn't play guitar. I, I moved to the Bay Area when I was halfway through eighth grade. But I didn't play guitar at all. But I went to some concerts. I was already through those friends and those connections. You know, I was I was way into Judas Priest, and I had this one. Uh, my brother's actually it wasn't my brother's friend. He was the preacher's son. Uh, Christopher was into all kinds of music, and I remember going. And it, my mom was good friends with his wife, Magine, till she just recently died. But we went over to their house. And he's like, "Here, you know, we want to listen to some records." And he took me into his room, and he just had a wall of records, and I. And he's like, take whatever you want, check it out. And I was going by album covers and what I'd heard of. Yeah. So I was like, Black Sabbath, Paranoid, yeah. Iron Maiden Killers had just come out. Like, just all this amazing stuff. And I just did it to rush. And so I took it home and I listened to it and I absorbed that. And then I went and figured out what I was going to buy. When I left out Kiss. Can't leave out Kiss. Kiss was important from <laughs> 1976 up until Dynasty. Okay. When I took every Kiss record I had outside and threw it in the street. Oh, no. Which I regretted as soon as I was done. Yeah. But I thought I was going to be an Air Force pilot, which is a whole other story. <laughs> so, you know, this is whole. This is my whole introduction to stuff. So he really escalated my game. You know, he had plasmatic posters, okay. and yeah. you know, so I'm like, I'm, I'm aroused. I'm just like everything's just like, whoa. You know, Wendy o. Williams was like, mm-hmm. whoa. You know, tape on the nipples and sure. just, you know, puberty running wild. So that really made me like heavier stuff. And then I was so into Maiden and Priest after that, and Sabbath. You know, um, that I w- was buying everything. So when Number of the Beast came out, I bought that the day it came out. Okay. Uh, Screaming for Vengeance, same thing. So I got to see, I really like the cars a lot too, but that's mm. a different thing. Um, I got to see Judas Priest on the Screaming for Vengeance tour. Nice. I got to see Van Halen on the Diver Down tour, all in Las Vegas. Vegas, okay. So at the Aladdin Theater, where the only place where we'd have concerts was the Aladdin Theater. And uh, I remember bringing the Priest tour program home. And showing it to my dad, <laughs> and you got to know, my, my dad was, this is going to sound way worse than it was. He's just being himself and honest, you know, this is a history professor what whatnot, but he had a, he could go to the potty mouth. <laughs> and, I, and I just hand him the tour program, this is what I went and saw last night, you saw this, he's all looking at it, he's all, these look like a bunch of London faggots, you know, <laughs> it's like, uh. I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> it's heavy metal, he's like. Do they all dress gay? I'm like, 
what are you talking about? I didn't understand at all. I was like completely lost. Yeah. So that had to make me start shifting my mind towards another, you know, like, is that a possibility? But that all came <laughs> later. But so I, I, uh, I like the heaviest things I could find, moved to the Bay Area. I was already deep into Saxon, you name it. Like I was, you know, all that era, I was way into it. And um, I moved to the Bay Area and then I got introduced to a couple other guys who were friends with some other friends that lived in the neighborhood I'd met. And they turned me on to Raven and Sabotage and uh, Holocaust mm -hmm. and like all this stuff that was so underground. But I was like, I was already into that and I hadn't heard anything else. And I was looking at the Record Factory. There's a place in Fremont called the Record Factory. Sure. The corner of Maori and Fremont Boulevard. And they had a bunch of magazines when there was tons of mags. And I was looking for Circus or Hit Parader or whatever else there was at that time. Just yeah. any heavy metal magazine. I didn't care, you know. I'd pick, take it out pictures, put them on my wall. My wall was covered mm -hmm. with individual pictures. And um, throughout that big pile of magazines, I pulled out a newspaper rag. And I, it was like all wrinkled up and shoved between a bunch of shit. It said uh, Metal Mania. Ron Quintana's magazine. Ron Quintana's magazine. I, I look at the cover. It's Iron Maiden from when they played The Day on the Green. Yeah. Steve Harris with his leg up. And I'm like, well, I've got to have this. So I just bought it sight unseen, mm -hmm. examined, looked through all this. I'm like, what is this shit? Merciful Fate, Venom, you know, like Metallica. It was mentioning Megadeth. Like, you, you know, because it was, they hadn't even, I think they just played their first show. Like, oh, I was like, it was the not quite ground level. It's like it, the, it was like the elevator had just started moving up. Right. And I got in, and I was like, "What is this?" And I was only, I think I had just turned, third. No, I was thirteen at the time. I don't. I hadn't even turned fourteen. And I was just holy shit. And then I see ads for the record vault. And I'm like, I wonder if they got all those Iron Maiden imports I'm looking for. And I see ads for the record exchange, and no one's gonna go with me. So I've got to get on BART and figure out which one I'm going to go to. Mm -hmm. So I went to the record exchange in Walnut Creek, and I, I went in there with all my allowance I'd saved up and bought Maiden Imports and blah, blah, blah. And I also bought uh, Merciful Fate, Corpse Without a Soul EP, mm -hmm. and Venom, Welcome to Hell. Mm -hmm. Metallica had not put out Kill Em All yet. So that was it. That was it. That was that was my calling. I'd found things that nobody else liked, which is what I always wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Things that other people didn't like. That was my thing. I, if you don't like it, I like it. Venom sounded like shit. I don't care. If you don't like it, it's good for me. You know. So that was kind of my real introduction into that stuff. And then later, I uh, so with those same guys that turned me on to all that stuff, they got excited because Kill 'Em All had come out. So, like, we're going to go and get Kill em All. And I went by myself. They went and did theirs, and I went by myself and went to uh, the record vault mm -hmm. and, you know, walked Polk Street and everything. Just you know, I think I tapped the thing, a little pint of Jack Daniels from somebody, got bought me one, and I got wasted. You know, I bought Kill em All, came home, learned that record. Oh, but I didn't, I, that's right. I By then, I picked up my first guitar. So I was going to ask, yeah. That happened uh, a little bit into my freshman year. Okay. I didn't even play guitar until ninth grade. And my dad was in Vegas still. My mom had moved up here to get remarried. And that who's she's still together with my stepdad, Mel. Really cool guy. But uh, they agreed to get me a guitar. And I bought a... 
I tried to buy the guitar that was the least defining of what I I was like coming and wanted a clean slate, so I bought a wood grain Ibanez Blazer, which okay. is a Strat body. Okay. I just didn't want to have anything that was to this or to that because I didn't know. It was Word funny how I went into that. that. I didn't yeah. want anything too metal or. Right. I don't even know that metal guitars really. You know, there was BC Rich, and you know, people weren't really thinking there's a Flying V, whatever. But it was yeah, early. it wasn't as defined. Not at all. Yeah. Not at all. But I just wanted the the most, uh, the least definable. Yeah. Guitar I could I could find, and I did, and I bought a little shitty Fender Harvard amp, and uh, and away I went, man. I started playing, and you know, I had a few friends that played a little bit. I wasn't very good at all until I broke my finger on my left hand playing football, and I was at a, had a cast. You can't see here, but I, I had my pinky and my ring finger on my left hand were in a cast, mm -hmm. and I only had these other two, you know, my index finger and and my uh, point middle finger, right? <laughs> and I had, uh, started playing upside down, and I learned how to do things like Limelight by Rush. Okay, and, like started yeah. to do it like, and then once I got it over. Once I got it off and I flipped my hand back over, it all clicked. That's so that's when I started yeah. playing better. But I wasn't very good. And I was carrying around that Merciful Fate EP one day at school just to be a rebel. That's the one with the... The naked... On the cross. Yeah, the yeah. girl on the cross, yeah. hand-drawn. Right. Totally. <laughs> so evil. And it's funny because I went on to play with Hank Sherman. And it's just weird how it all works out. Oh, wow. But uh, I'll have to get to that. Yeah, we'll get to that. But anyway, so... Walking around school that day, this Chinese, this is my freshman year at high school, and I was just trying to like kind of, you know, walk around with all my records, like this is what I'm into. Yeah. You know, like laying my stink like a cat. Mm -hmm. And uh, this Chinese guy walks up to me, he's like, hey man, you like that shit? I'm like, yeah. He's like, I know this, a guy who likes the same shit as you. So I'm like, okay. He's like, you want to meet him? I'm like, nobody likes this. He's like, no, he likes what you like, trust me. I'm like, yeah, if he, yeah. So we end up going over... The next day, took a bus, went over there, went to that dude's house. It turned out to be Rob Flynn. Mm. And this is Rob with one B, not Rubub. Rob, <laughs> you know, before he became Rubub. But, you know, he was really into the same shit, and he was super cool. And, and was he out in Fremont? He, he lived in Fremont, too, yeah. And he lived in a different part over uh, behind, because he went to American High School, and I went to Washington High School. Sure enough, though, we hit it off. We became pretty close friends. I was a couple of years younger, so I wasn't quite, I don't know if you'd call it mature, because neither of us were really mature, but I wasn't caught up. I wasn't as good a guitar player, but he knew that I had that spark that he had, and he mm -hmm. had that spark. As we can tell today, he had the little extra, you know, he had a chip on his shoulder, you know, and he wanted to sing. He, did, he, he wanted to take guitar secondary. He wanted to be a lead singer, and I actually watched him do a talent show where he did that. And he didn't look as cool as he does these days. <laughs> and, you know, he did a song with a bunch of other guys. It was a Torch song. Remember Torch? You ever hear Torch? I think they're French. No. Just the random shit we liked. I mean, because Jim Pittman, who played in Forbidden Evil, which we'll get to, right. was a huge collector of everything. Okay. All the compilations, all the demos. He right. was a tape trader extraordinaire. And as was Rob. And Rob like had the Ingve demos all on cassette. Which he let me borrow that first day. and. I was like, what the fuck? I'd never heard anything like that. Way before even Alcatraz or Rising Force, you know? So, you know, that introduction, again, it's another, like, if it was a graph, there'd be like a, there'd be a check there. Right. And my trajectory just went up. And then I wanted to play with him, but I wasn't ready. And uh, 
it didn't work out. And I played with another guy in the garage who I, I met this guy. Uh, he should be talked about more often because his name was Sean McMullen and he was a drummer and he was just starting to play drums. But we were learning Venom songs and Slayer, like Black Magic and mm -hmm. stuff like so. I was I, I bought the Slayer album like the week it came out. Show No Mercy, I had that, like all that stuff. And um, we were learning all that shit. And this guy was fucking great. He was he was going to be great. He was getting good at double bass. Mm. He'd bash the shit out of the drums. He would get mad. He'd throw sticks at me. It was he had all the tools. And he was a kid. Like he was age. a kid. He was my age. Yeah. Straight A student. Total druggie. Yeah. He's the he was the guy. You like? How do you do all those drugs and <laughs> still get straight A's? And you know he was a total pimp. You know he was still having sex him. way before the rest of us. Uh -huh. You know. But anyway, um, when the opportunity finally arose again, arose again. I was hanging out with Rob a lot. We were going to shows. We went and saw Exciter together. We went to the Venom Slayer possessed oh, gig together. Yeah. We did, you know, all of us. We a bunch of us hanging out. But when he he was really excited one day, he told me that he found this amazing singer. Uh, his, Leroy, his other guitar player, found him uh, in an ad on Bam in Bam mm -hmm. or something, and he was so excited. He's like, "Dude, this guy can sing like Rob Halford or whatever, Dickinson or Dio or whatever." I'm like, "No, he can't." So no, come on out. So. I go to the rehearsal at this guy, other guitar player's house, uh, and I, I see this red hair. He actually had white hair. He had white hair and a perm. He just looked so odd to me. I was like, what the fuck? Where'd this guy come from? And he turned out to be from L.A., kind of talked like a valley dude. I was like, this guy can sing, you know? I mean, he looks ridiculous. Right. And uh, he was so much bigger than everybody. And yeah. he, was, he was 23, so he's like buying everyone beer and yeah. cigarettes. So anyway, so they proceed to jump into doing Hellbent for Leather right in front of my face. And I'm just like, what? I mean, he just like, he did Halford's Power with ease. It was, it was you see other people try. Mm -hmm. He didn't try. It was only do with Russ. He only did. It was all easy for him. And I watched him to go through, blaze through like Restless and Wild. And all these songs they were covering and. And then uh, all the other guys went to the store, like 7-Eleven, and Rob drove them over there to get cigarettes or something. And then Russ and I were just sitting there. And I go, hey, man, you mind if I pick up that guitar and play for a second? He's like, no, man, go ahead. So I started, I busted in the balls to the wall, and I played it with all the finger. I, I was much better of a guitar player by that point. Yeah. Not great. Still couldn't really play leads worth of shit. But I, I was a really good rhythm player at that point. And I played it for him, and he's all... You're way better than the guy we got. <laughs> we should get you in the band of all. You tell Rob. You let Rob know, you know. And then they basically, they were moving out of Leroy's garage, needed a garage to play in. I was better than the other guy. And Rob said, yeah, that sounds cool. You know, Craig's ready. So that was how Forbidden Evil, we weren't even Forbidden Evil yet. It was one of the names they were throwing around. All right. They threw around a bunch of them, like Inquisitor, War Witch, like stupid mm. names. And for, <laughs> Forbidden Evil ended up sticking after like numerous throwing arounds of other names and drawing other things on shirts, and Forbidden Evil ended up sticking. Which came first, the the name or the song? Oh, the name. I believe Forbidden Evil was a song originally by a band called We could we could look it up. It was like War Cry or something like that. It was like a, a it was on a, one of those U.S. metal albums. Okay. Forbidden, Forbidden Evil was the name of a song. So, yeah, the song Forbidden Evil um, came into it, a few, uh, you know, within a couple months. Uh, Rob had the opening riff. 
and then we I had a bunch of riffs, and we we just said we'll just do our version of Satan's Fall, and we just threw mm -hmm. our riffs together. And Rob was really good at arranging. I mean, he was farther ahead than I was at that point. You know, when we first started, he was just you know he's two years older, he's more advanced, yeah. and I was learning really quickly. And then he knew I was learning really quickly, and then I started writing songs. And March in a Fire, which is on mm -hmm. that Eastern Front you're talking about, was one of the first ones I wrote by myself. And that wasn't even done when we played at that show. We just didn't have enough songs at Ruthie's. That's our first time playing Ruthie's. I cold, cold called uh, Wes Robinson. Yeah, I got his number from somebody because I was going to the shows all the time. And I might have got it right from him. I might have walked up to him because I'd heard that he was the guy. I was just so... I had balls, man, because I'd walk right up to people and start talking. And that's how I got all the gigs. Like, I basically got all our gigs. I, I met Debbie Bono. I called her outright, you know, just like... You got to manage us. You know, Introduce stuff like yourself that. to her. Yeah, Rob wasn't doing that. He'll tell you this to this day. Like those initial moves yeah. got us in a lot of situations, and I was only fifteen, sixteen by the time. But I just didn't care. I didn't know any better. Really cocky. I guess it paid off in a weird way. Well, yeah. Yeah. So we did the first uh, bunch of gigs with some covers and a few originals. So this We're, is you, Rob, and Russ. It was me, Rob, and Russ. Jim Pittman was our drummer. Okay. And John Tegia was our bass player. Okay. And John was a year younger than all the rest of us. He was a Filipino guy. I just went out and had dinner with him and his wife the other night, and we went and saw Machine Head's last show. Okay. Or not last show ever, but last show with Phil and right. Dave. So, right. you know, most of us are really still good friends. Yeah. That, that bond is there. Jim was mad, though, for many years, because the next thing we did is when, when Rob started writing Chalice of Blood, which, start, again, started with something he was writing, was much slower, much slower because it was so hard to play and we were then we kind of pieced it together and, and our drummer jim Pittman, couldn't play double bass mm. but rob's like it has to be double bass it has to be so we're like how the fuck is he gonna learn double bass and jim's like i talked to my cousin he's starting to play double bass maybe he could teach me how he does it and his cousin was paul bostap okay so we watched paul give him a drum lesson on how to play double bass and rob and i just look at each other we're like <laughs> What are we doing? Yeah. Like this, we'll be so much better with this guy in the band. And so that was a big decision that Rob had made because he was, you know, the boss at the time. And Rob's like, we're going to have to replace him. And then Russ is like, sure, you know, he's way better. No argument there. Same with John. So once we had told Jim that we were going to replace him with his cousin, who Paul had like had to wrestle with it for his morality, you know, my cousin, it's my cousin, it's my cousin. Sure. Man, Jim couldn't be mad at anybody else but me because he grew up with Rob. Paul's his cousin. Okay, I'm the new guy. He's like he's just like pointing at me like you. So everything was fine until you came. Yeah, everything was cool until you came. <laughs> well, I wasn't the one who had a problem playing double bass. So there you go. Yeah, but yeah. So he went on to form the Slambodians after that. Oh, nice. Yeah, Slambos. Yeah, yeah. The, <laughs> that was his. That was his band. So, his, you know, and Vengeance Upon Me was one of his main directors. It didn't work out okay. that way, but... Wow, I had kids, no idea. Just kids yeah. stuff, you know? Yeah, yeah. But I was into Venom, and I like had, like, evil music. So sure. he didn't like that. He was more Christian. Okay. And since then, we're all cool, trust me. Right. But, you know, these are the things that happen when you're kids, like the the, the grudges. So, how, did, how did you hook up with Matt? Well, that I knew Matt in high school. I okay. met him. He got kicked out of every school around the area, and he finally made it to Washington. He lasted about a week. <laughs> And, but I, I hit it off with him the first day. And uh, he was in my one of my classes. And his long-haired dude wearing a Kiss Animal Eye shirt. Ah. 
And I was like, so you like Kiss? He's like, oh, I love Kiss. I'm like, all right, cool, cool. And then uh, he was like, all the chicks were into him the first day he got there. He was kind of androgynous at that point, you know, like, because he hung out with this band Sex from uh, Hayward, and they were all glam dudes who love metal, but they did the glam thing because it got all the chicks. Uh So they were all in the same music I was into, but they totally dressed up all glam. So he was in that scene, and it worked on the girls at my school. But I just remember the first day I met him, he's just like, spitting his gum up in the air and catching it in his mouth and just like well he's got he's got uh, something yeah and he got in a fight within a week kicked mm. out within that week um, got his ass kicked pretty good okay he wasn't a fighter uh, we went and saw him I, I was I was well we knew we were going to have to replace John because John wasn't a real great bass player and we were getting better with Paul Paul was great so like we need this ingredient you know I said I know a bass player He's not very good, but he could probably get pretty good if we work on it. So we went and saw him play uh, with his band, something black, Phantom Black. And he had a kind of a Cliff Burton vibe to him at the time. So that was all everyone needed to see. Like, well, yeah, he looks cool, you know. And uh, so we recruited him. I just remember, like, it was a, it was a bit of a courting around where, where he wanted to be in the band, and then he kept talking to Rob about it, like fighting, he'd, he'd like track Rob down on the buses to like sit with him and say, hey, I need to be in your band. So Matt was pretty persistent about wanting to see us. And I don't remember exactly how it all came together, but you know, eventually Matt became, he came into the band and then uh, I remember Rob being like, I thought you were better than this, <laughs> you know? But that was like, you know, we started playing those first shows with Matt and uh, Paul in the band, and I believe our very first and only show with Paul, Matt, Rob, Russ, and myself was when we played the Scottish Rites Temple uh, with Suicidal Tendencies and Legacy and Lost Rocket and Stone Vengeance. Was that here in Oakland? Yeah. By the lake? Yep. Yeah. Insane, you know. We opened the show, you know. uh, We had just finished writing some stuff, and... That was our first show, or first and only show with that full lineup of guys. Are we talking 85 or 86? 86. 86. This is 86, and we'd already put out, you know, the demo, uh, the Endless Slaughter demo, which I'm wearing, with that had the old lineup, which was, wasn't even a demo. It was like a live recording with closed mics, and we called it a demo. There was no, it sounded horrible. Mm. But Forbidden Evil was on that, Next to Die, which turned into part I Profit, the uh, okay. Violent the Silence. Violence. But that's a whole nother story. The violence angle is a whole nother story. And getting Rob getting into violence is a whole nother story. Because those guys, we all rehearsed in in, uh, in Fremont at, at a place called Fast and Furious. We did. And this band Violence was going to come in there because they were friends with the, a couple guys in, in the band Annihilation that we shared the mm-hmm. room with. So those guys blow in, you know, and they're all cocky. And I remember, like... I remember seeing them play the first time and, and in the room, and it wasn't good. And they had an old singer and an old guitar player, Troy Fua, an old singer, Jerry Burr, and it wasn't good the first time. Like, the first time through their set, I was like, hmm, no. Then I went, I, I went and did some bong hits, and I came back for the second set, and they were a fucking blur of... It was like a machine. It wasn't super amazing yet but you could just see like i got it i was like oh they're good they're hell i was i was high and they played better that second set 
It's like, they're cool. And Rob was really intrigued by them, you know. And I, and I liked them, but they didn't have a great singer. So I wasn't totally in love with it. Fast forward a couple months down the line. This is all true, too. I'm not making it. And nothing I've said, it's all my recollection. It might not be exactly how it happened, but this is how. So you no, this is exactly how it happened. Yeah. I'm going to tell you right now. This is exactly <laughs> how it happened. So I'm kicking back in my room at, at home playing guitar. And my mom knocks on the door. Like, There's a couple guys here to see you. Just like a Tom and Jerry or something. So I, I look down the hall and there's Perry and Jerry from Violence. I didn't even know they know where I live. Like, how'd they find out? I don't yeah. even ask them. Like, what's up? They come back and they're like, close the door. They're like, want to talk to you, man. We're, uh, we want you to play in Violence. I'm like, what? They're like, yeah, you're like a Dave Mustaine. And I go, what do you mean? Like an asshole? I mean, what do you mean? You know? <laughs> well, yeah, kind of. You know, you just, you got that fucking attitude. I'm like, you want me to play in your band? I'm like, I like my band. I like my band. I, I think Russ is great. I mean, nothing against you, Jerry, you know, but I'm a metal guy. You know, you guys are like kind of more punk. And and they're like, oh, no, dude, you're, you're, I'm like, why do you want me? Why don't you want Rob? Because like, you're violence material. They said that, mm. right? Mm. And I go, pass. You know, I'm like, thanks, guys. That's super cool. I'll pass. And then, all kinds of crazy shit happens after that. But basically, that moment went by. So we were going to go in and record a demo, which we did do. But uh, right before we were going to do it, Rob uh, showed up to practice with a... He had a broken arm. He had an arm in sling. He's all, yeah, man, I fucking broke my arm on the way to... Uh, or I was trying to steal some beer from Food and Deli. And I was, and they chased us out, and then I was running from the cops, and I jumped over the fence. And he had this whole story about how he had a broken arm, and and we're like, oh fuck, that sucks. You know, I didn't think twice about it. But what are we gonna do about the demo? He said, let's push it back a couple weeks, and then I'll see what I can do. So we did, and then the night, the day before we were gonna record, we still hadn't played with them. Like fuck, man, are you gonna be all right? He's well, let's practice. So we practiced and played great. Like, I guess you're all right, killer. We recorded. Killer took two days in the studio with Doug Caldwell, who ended up working on Forbidden Evil with us. We recorded As Good as Dead, Forbidden Evil, Next to Die, and Chalice of Blood. Again, we did three or two of the songs were on the other one. We're like, right on. We were stoked about it. And then Rob disappeared for like a week. We're like, what the fuck? What the fuck? Where's Rob at? What the fuck? So uh, finally, Russ gets a hold of him and then he calls me. Russ calls me. He's like, oh, we got to go to practice tonight. He's like, we got to have a talk. And I show up, and, and Paul picks us all up, and then Russ and, and Rob were there, and, and Russ just says, Rob has something to tell you guys. And then Rob went through and just berated us all and told us, you're this, you're that, this is wrong with you, you suck at this, you're not that. Just went through this whole thing, and he's like, I'm going to join violence. And I was like, I, my, you can't see my mouth open. I was like, what? What? Like my my kid, I had no way to process all the things that had happened and, and couldn't say anything that made any sense at all. And I was completely lost in the moment. And I said something really horrible to him. Um, something about one day I'm going to take a shit on your head or something. Uh -huh. Like, Just couldn't even process it, right. dude. I was like 16 years old. And sure. just like, what the fuck? I was in 11th grade. I was like, I can't believe this. I didn't say anything about them asking me. Didn't even, 
I couldn't even process that. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't want to be like, well, they asked me for just none of that shit even. And I was just like, holy fuck, what are we going to do? You know? And when I said what I said, he goes, thanks for making my decision easier. I'm like, sure enough. So there began the rivalry because we were not rivals with violence at all until Rob did right that. that. Right. And then that was like, ooh, what are we going to do? So we went through a big search for guitar players. Yeah. None of them were 100% equipped to do what we were doing. But we found Glenn, who just shredded. Mm-hmm. Never listened to thrash metal in his life. Okay. Came from, he liked Dawkins and Van Halen and Ingve and shit. Shredders. Shredders, yeah. But we were like, well, at least he's a better lead guitar player than Rob. So <laughs> you know, Rob was really good at that time. You know, we're, We thought he was the, the shit. And so that was the beginning of that whole era. So, um, yeah, we have a lot to talk about. And I could just hear these stories all day. They're um, they're pretty funny. They're amazing. I could actually really write a book if I wanted to, <laughs> and, and a few people might be interested. Yeah, um, things start to 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 pick up steam. I mean, you're writing, you're playing locally. Is it's towards the end of '88 that Forbidden Evil comes out the record. Right. Right. Yeah, we record. We we get the record deal in the beginning of '88. And okay. Record during the summer, and uh, I was I remember turning 19 in the studio when we were doing it. Okay. And then, you know, you guys are off, you're doing Europe, things are starting to to really pick up speed, and you're very much right in there with the other Bay Area thrash bands. Um, that's a very celebrated era. It was the golden age of Bay Area thrash, for it sure. It was, yeah. Did you, did you have any perspective on that as no. it was happening? Um, you know what? No, I mean... There's a lot of things. There were so many things going on at that time, Andrew. I just, you know, from the time that Rob quit and we got Glenn, you know, to that, getting him acclimated into playing our stuff, and then the songs we were starting to write, like mixing his parts into what we were writing, and like it's just all kind of just, it really happened quick. And, you know, Violence is doing really well. They immediately with Rob became a force, you know. And then all of a sudden we were a force, and then we were doing all that stuff together, and and we had Death Angel and Legacy to the Testament before us and Heathen. Mm-hmm. Like those, that was a wave that was right there, right before us. And then we come jumping in right on that other end of it. Right. With our super rivalry and all this fucking contemptuous backbiting and the stuff that really pushed us. Did to that become, fuel? Oh, that it fueled fuel the fuck out yeah. of both of us. Yeah. I think it really fueled, to be honest, if you talk to them, you know, because we just did this thing for Sean Killian and, mm-hmm. you know, between Phil, I went to Phil to, Phil's house to learn some, you know, detailed stuff. Yeah. And he's all, he just looked at me and said, Craig Lucistro playing violent songs. He's like, <laughs> I never would have fucking seen it. I'm all, dude, that's how we are now. You know, we, we're all older. We all help each other. He's like, it's amazing, dude. It's great. And, you know, we've all become friends. And sure. But at that time, it was just like, they they really, there would have been a rivalry, but there was a certain meanness that came from them. Okay. It was like a cruel trying to put us down and, and make sure that we understood that we were not, you know, they were above us. So right? it wasn't all friendly. I mean, there was no. some darkness to it. There was some darkness to yeah. it. And there was other things that, you know, there's... You know, we all did stupid shit and said stupid things, but they were they were as exceptionally cruel and cocky about it all. I was cocky without being cruel, you know, but they were cruel and cocky. And looking back at it, like, you know, all that pent-up energy and just all that negativity really helped build up a, a killer, 
competition that made everyone better. You yeah. know, everyone was so much better. And, you know, up until, uh, I guess, Forbidden Evil came out, they were definitely the next everything. And then when Forbidden Evil came out, it just basically just overshadowed all they were doing. Now, to certain people, no. But to the world, the metal world, yes. Because we were Forbidden Evil was on the back of every magazine. Mm-hmm. Every single magazine had full-page ads. It was just an endless barrage of critical acclaim and things that we weren't even prepared for. We weren't even sure how good that album was. Honestly, we, we recorded that thing so quick, and there was so many weird things that happened in the studio. Vocals were all done in a day. I wasn't even there to do vocals when that was my main thing is to work with Russ and help him through vocals. Mm-hmm. Like They skipped on picking me up that day. It was wow. like weird shit had happened. And it was all just like we didn't even you know, understand how much of an impact Forbidden Evil was going to have. And once it did, we're like, holy shit, you know, like stakes are higher. And we were in Europe, actually. Before we even went to Europe, we were having problems with Glenn. Because Glenn was a great guitar player, but Glenn thought everything was about him. Like he was under the impression, since we were on Combat Relativity, that, you know, they wanted just instrumental tracks with him shredding and whatever. Mm-hmm. It's like, dude, you're in this band to shred, but you're not in this band to A, write songs, and B, call any shots. You know, there was never the reason why we got him. And he just, we went, we before we even went to Europe, I was already recruiting uh, Tim Calvert. Okay. Started sitting with him, showing him riffs, and then him and I kind of worked out one foot in hell and, and step by step together. Mm-hmm. And we showed it to Glenn, and he's just like, uh, you know, so we kind of showed him that, and he learned those. And then we went to Europe and started jamming with sound checks and stuff like that. So did Tim go to Europe with you? No. Okay. Glenn was in Europe our first <clears throat> tour. Right. And Debbie was on the fence about firing him because he was such a good lead guitar player. Mm-hmm. But at that time, his selfishness in the moment kept shining through. And I'll never forget the day. It was like... I'll never forget the day. She was always on the fence about it. And Tim was home learning stuff. And I told him, there's a 85% chance that when we come home, you'll be in the band. But there's that 15% (laughs) chance that it might be later, but you'll eventually be in the band. So Glenn, you know, unbeknownst to him at the time, he knew knew nothing about any of that. Tim was hanging around and we weren't even being honest about who he really was or where he's really from. I think we told him he's from Vegas. We just had to protect ourselves, you know. Like, because we didn't know how it was going to break. And Debbie was, like, really hesitant. Everyone else wanted Glenn out. But anyway, so there was a day we were in Europe, and we were going to go to a castle. And uh, As one does. As one does. And we woke up, and it was so funny. Like, you know, I just, we were in the bus with Sacred Reich, and everyone was excited. Let's go to the castle. And Glenn's just, just sitting there with his arms crossed. He's all, I'm not going in. And Debbie's all, why the fuck aren't you going in? And he's like, I'm not going. He's like, why? He's like, I want to get something to eat. I'm hungry. And she's all, we'll eat later. He's like, you're at a castle, Glenn. When in Rome, go. And he's all, no, I'm hella hungry. Fuck that. Exact quote. And she's she's like, well, fuck you then. Debbie, like, you know, old as Uh, she was, uh like about 60 at that point, I think. Uh, still would just like lay it out. Yeah. Like, Fuck you. So then he's all, fine. He's all, I'll just sit here then. So everybody gets off the bus. We all file out. He's just sitting there pouting with his arms crossed. And then she's like, 
we, we she uh, the last person walks out. She closes the door. And she's all, now let's go find something to eat. Fuck him. He's all, and call your friend with the funny hair. It was it was Tim who had kind of bigger hair. For the, okay, it's just curly. It wasn't yeah, teased yeah, or anything. Yeah, yeah. But she like always had a problem with his hair. Call your friend with the funny hair. So that was the first time she said really, you know, like it was really going to happen. And then there was another show. Like that was moment one. There was another show where we we had a great reaction, and we walked back to where. You know, backstage was this club in Germany, and then Debbie's like, "Get out there and do your encore." And, and Glenn's like, "Nope." She, what do you mean, nope? He's like, "Nope, I don't want to do an encore." What do you mean? What the fuck do you mean you want to do an encore? He's like, "I'm not going out there." And he just sat down, and then she just like looked at me. And she's all, mm. "So those two moments right there were like, yeah, yeah." We just knew that he was prima donna was on the way, right? You know, right. it's interesting that um, she was really part of. Like a, an integral part of that decision. Um, she, well, we were gonna do it, but she, yeah, she was integral. But she was integral in everything. Well, I was gonna ask about everything. Ask about that. I mean, I remember seeing her around at shows all the time and thinking to myself, "Who is this? Who is this old woman at all these shows?" Yeah. And then I figured out who she was, and you know, her her role in all of this is, you know, has been talked about a lot. I'm curious though. She was also working very closely with violence. Well, that came after. That did okay. Again, this is the competition, right? So I, I was going to ask how that. Okay, I had cold called Debbie as as the, the kid that I was, and told her how good we were and how killer it was going to be, and she's like, "Yeah, I just finished working with Possessed. I'm not really sure if I want to do this anymore. I don't uh, know." Okay. And then, but we had just finished the demo uh, that we did with Glenn with "Follow Me," which is the first song him and I wrote together. He wrote the intro. I wrote the song. Yeah, and uh, but yeah, it's so. Ah, uh, this is is so funny. So, we had just finished doing that. I told her about it. She's all, I'll "See, maybe." I'll, and I told her, "Come see us. We're gonna play the Twilight Zone in in Alameda. Come see us this day." <laughs> and uh, the Twilight Zone. The Twilight Zone. And we we did a show with Lethal Creed and Tyrannicide. Okay, saw. I can't remember who else. One other band, which escapes me right now. But anyway, we were uh, talking about doing that. And in the meantime, I went with Russ to uh, Ron Quintana's KUSF. And we played that demo on the air. And we played Follow Me. And people lost their fucking minds. Yeah, rightly so. Everyone freaked out because it was not like any of the other Bay Area mm -hmm. bands at all. It showed Russ was way different. Everything is more, you know, everything was different. So it just hit everyone's eardrums the right way. And then Davey, uh, is between Davey Vane and Debbie. Debbie had heard through Davey Vane, he said he discovered a band. He discovered us on the radio. Uh, In other words, he was listening, so he discovered. <laughs> yes. So Davey Vane says, I discovered this band to, to Debbie. And Debbie's all, who are they? Forbidden was like, yeah, they want me to manage them. He's like, you should absolutely manage him. So she went and checked us out at the Twilight Zone, and that's where she agreed to manage us. Okay. Now, as soon as she agreed to manage us and word got out on the streets, Violence got very envious. And Rob, this, he talks about this. This has all been talked about. Uh -huh. They got pissed off. How could they be managed by Debbie Bono? So they sent Joey Houston over to her, and then he talked her into co-managing. So that's where that whole thing was. Oh, okay. All right. So then we couldn't even get away. We're like... Yeah. We're trying to do our own forge, right. our own path. And right. here they are, you know, they try to overshadow it. They got their record deal first. But like I said, when, once Forbidden Evil came out, that's when 
they hit, you know, a plateau at that time because of Sean Killian's vocals, which were great for us. And I loved, dude, I loved them. Yeah. I think Sean's is, is a genius in his own way. Uh-huh. But a lot of people throughout the world just didn't have the palate for it. It you was know? tough, yeah. Yeah, it was different, you know. So it was just, you know, it, they, hit, they hit their level unless they were going to change, and they tried to, and Sean just didn't, he can't. He was good at that. So once, you know, everything, then that was kind of the beginning of their downfall because I, I felt like, I really felt like when we started having success and they started having envy, it just really caused a, a fracture in in their machine, you know? And um, when we released Twisted in Form, and how well that went over even better than For Big yeah, Evil, that was right. a more successful album. And everything got bigger and better. We got to tour Europe like twice on those two albums, and they didn't ever get over there. And right. So that was like, you know, right. a lot of that led to like internal shit with them, which eventually led to Rob quitting the band. Mm-hmm. And starting Machine Head, mm-hmm. you know, as Rob said, it, it, we did one interview together. He said, "Much to my chagrin, uh, Forbidden ended up doing a lot better than Violence did." You know, I mean, at the time, but doesn't matter anymore. Not so much. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't really matter. <laughs> like looking back at it, like you win, you know, lose the battle or win the battle, lose the war. You know, like there's, no, but there was no war. It was just kids thinking. It was just kids, yeah. being kids. Yeah, and we're all friends now, so there you go. So it's interesting when you start looking at the timeline, Twisted Into Form was 90, and I think Oppressing the Masses was also 90. Yeah. And then Violence kind of, as you said, they they didn't take it further than that. I mean, there was the, the one album that came much later that I think was a Japanese-only release um, that was a lot different. Um, Nothing to Gain? Maybe that's what it was called, yeah. Yeah, it was different, all right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but Some good riffs on it, though. You know, things started Things started with thrash metal to kind of fall apart shortly thereafter. By 92, I mean, Ex- Exodus, they were, they were on the, the decline. Um, Death Angel had called it quits a couple years before. I could define it for you right now. So let's talk about it. Okay. Well, I think you could see that when we came out with our album, Forbidden Evil was kind of like, and, and, and say Eternal Nightmare, were kind of the end of the era of all of it being really raw. Right. Right? So what ended up happening is commercial success started coming for bands like Exodus and Testament. Mm-hmm. And uh, to Exodus's credit, they never wrote a ballad. But, you know, Testament wrote ballads, and they were pretty successful. Metallica wrote ballads. They were pretty successful. What happened was once it became a fashion statement and it wasn't so much uh, a movement as it was a trend, mm-hmm. I saw the whole thing slowly derailing as it got stagnant and all the bands started dressing the same. You can see it. That if you look back at it, all like most of the bands started parting their hair on the side. Mm-hmm. Like Everyone kind of had a uniform like formula and then all the baby bands that were up and coming all looked like they stepped out of like you know everyone's back album cover like everybody started being the same and everyone wrote a ballad and everyone did this and every so there was a it was gonna come and then really you know there's all when something like that happens there's always something that comes in that 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 wipes the table clean and sure and really that was uh people like to point to nirvana which is absolutely true 
But when uh, Alice in Chains did Facelift, there's an understanding that music can be better. It can be heavy. It can be melodic. It can be rock and roll. But Alice in Chains kind of started the whole thing. And Soundgarden was right, right there behind him. Louder Than Love came out first. But, one, okay, say Facelift, then uh, Bad Motor Finger. People started, and then Pearl Jam with 10. And, like, there's a thing that started happening. And then Nevermind. And when Nevermind came out, Everything else seemed kind of stupid and uh, formulatic, and everything else just seemed a lot more stagnant because it was. It was. It was becoming formula, and that's what happened to our scene. So only very few bands survived it. Yeah. You know, I mean, Exodus wasn't writing great albums. Impact yeah. is imminent is not a great album. Mm -hmm. It had some cool riffs on it. The Ritual, like mm -hmm. you go through them, you know. And Forbidden's next album would have been a completely different thing too. People love our demos we did after that. It was the trap demo and stuff we did with Paul. They thought that was really cool, but it was like we were headed in more of a progressive. We were improving so damn fast as musicians right. that we'd lost our edge. But people, it's funny, the same people that swear by Forbidden Evil love those trap demos, which are more like Fate's Warning or something. Like we were heading in a completely, it was not very heavy. Everybody was just getting stagnant. That that's really what did it. Just there was a too much sameness, and something new was coming in, and it just wiped the table clear. And it, I mean, it would have happened. It was gonna happen no matter what. Something was gonna come mm -hmm. next. Something always comes next, and it always feels does. it feels like people point the finger right at Nirvana, and that was the know, end. That was the definitive period, turning of the page. Yeah, yeah. but it felt to me like. Um, I mean, Death Angel was done by that point. By the time Nevermind came out, Death Angel had already Well, there's reasons and, why. No, sure, but... And you know the history of the Death Angel was going to be on Clash of the Titans. Yeah. And they got in the accident. Right. Then Alice in Chains popped in. Mm-hmm. And they were not... Alice in Chains was not loved night after night, but by the end of every show, everyone respected them because they stood up... Right. ...and rocked and didn't give a fuck what you sure, thought. Sure, sure. Which is a new thing altogether, too, you know? To be a rock band that said "fuck you," right? It worked. It it feels like things, as you said, were kind of reaching a natural end. You know, you look at the violence history, um, the things that they've talked about, the business decisions, the deals, the the things that you know. Everyone, you guys were kids, and yeah. suddenly you're touring the world, and um, you're actually making a living, more or less, playing music. Well. Um, <laughs> Should have been. The money was not looked after. That was the one thing. And that's I, another part of it. For, right? Yeah, for, for for violence and us, you know, they they fired Debbie first, and that was like really heavy. Right. You know, Debbie was amazing at how she did things was a little different because she had a heart of gold and she was wealthy, so she wasn't concerned with money for shows back-end things. She's like, let's just live this because this is just a trend for you kids. You guys are going to all grow up and do different things when you get older. Uh -huh. It wasn't like, you're going to do this for the rest of your life. We need to protect your interests. It was more like, I'll get you a record deal. We'll get a certain amount of money and we'll put you out on tour. And then she would cover certain things if they didn't. We'd get tour support. But like, man, oh man, were those contracts just open-ended and, you know, they were just bad. And um, she wasn't concerned with, like, thinking about things like that because she right. was taking care of you anyway. So she figured, I'll take care of you. And then when those bands 
you know, like us and, and violence. And when we ended up having to let her go because of those business decisions, you know, she was very resentful. But then we start finding out that basically she was taking care of a lot of shit. Mm-hmm. So, that, you know, God bless her for that. Yeah. yeah. If you're a yeah. God or I'm not, whatever. But you know what I mean? I do. You know, bless her for that. <laughs> and I became really good friends with her towards the end again. I, I Her last four or five years, we reconnected. Okay. And she got, she got to meet my son. And she loved my wife already, you know. Yeah, like, you know, it was just, it was like good heart, good connections. Not great business, you know. But I'll tell you, there's something else about Debbie that we all found out. This was the the straw that broke the camel's back for us. And we didn't know any of this shit until after we'd done Twisted in a Form. But when we had finished Forbidden Evil and we were rolling, Rick Rubin tried to get a hold of her. He actually did. He reached out to her. He got a hold of her. He's, he's I want this band. I want to buy them out of their contract. Can I get Forbidden Evil? And she said no. She didn't tell us. Because mm. she didn't think we were mentally equipped to move to the next level. She thought we were too immature and our heads were too big and she just didn't want us to go too fast. It was her reasoning. And it's it wasn't quiet, until quiet after judgment. we were out on tour and she, we were coming home, I think I, we might have been, it, I think it was on the Twisted Into Form tour in the United States, she just flippantly said one day, yeah, well, I told Rick Rubin that you weren't ready and I was right. And, we, and Paul was like, you Whoa. did what? He said, what the fuck? And he was especially, especially offended. Mm. You know, and ironically, he went on to join Slayer later. But he was really pissed. And he was probably the most instrumental at that time for saying, we've got to move on because she's making decisions that could have veered our career in a completely different direction. Now, that being said, I don't personally really regret it because I figured the Twisted and Form turned out to be a pretty classic album without... Rick Rubin, it, sure, the production's okay, but the songs, the, songs the direction, we wouldn't yeah. have not written that kind of album with, with Rick. Rick would have wanted us to do Forbidden Evil 2.0, which mm-hmm. would have made a certain crowd happy. And maybe would have set us in a different direction I in the right way. I don't, I don't really know. I went on to work with Rick Rubin later in Man Made God, and we mm-hmm. talked about this. Okay. It was like the first conversation we had out in the parking lot after I showcased. I said, so, <laughs> you know... You know, I was in Forbidden. And he's like, no, you know, I wanted to sign you guys, but your manager turned me down. Like, I know, I know, you know, so this all really had happened. And so, yeah, but like wow. I said, closure's great. And with Debbie, I had complete closure yeah. and I'm still great friends with her family. And, you know, she, she meant all the best. She really did. But just like anybody else, it's like your family. Sometimes they're going to look out for you and maybe... It's not exactly what you wanted. Sure. You know, so that's, that was certainly the case with her. During those, so those years, mid-90s to the later 90s, Distortion was, was that 94? That was 94. So we had a almost a four-year a gap. A four-year gap, yeah. It was things, a four-year gap, but it was, yeah. But that's because the dark ages of metal as we went Right, over. I mean, as things. And were you, I mean, were you playing consistently during that time, or... Did the band take Yeah, we did. No, yeah. we played. We played a lot of local shows and it had some really great ones. Uh, you know, we're still packing them in and you know, it got a little it got a little lean in there for a while cuz the cl- there wasn't as many clubs to play. The right. Omni was you know, we played the Omni a few times. This is that we got Steve Jacobs and Paul Joint Slayer and all that stuff and it was lean cuz the time was lean. 
And I did the death. I I did, right. I toured with Death in '93, and I I brought our demo out with us that uh, ended up getting us signed to Gun, okay. BMG in, in Germany. Yeah, and that was a, that was actually a pretty good little run. We had a good time through that, and you know, Distortion was really responded to very well in Europe, and as much as people could hear it out here, but we did a tour of Europe. Uh, lasted a couple months with excuse me with Gorefest, which is weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they were pretty. They were almost like rock and roll at that point. They were not the old gore fest. It was weird. So they had they had they had changed to like death okay. metal vocals, but it was like right. It was like sterile stoner rock. It was it was way they they were good. They were actually really good, but it was way weird tour. And, uh, and then we did United States with Testament, and then uh, on their low tour, and then Malevolent Creation. So we did. Okay, I a saw good run. you with Malevolent at some point. Yeah, where did we play? Edge. At the Edge? Yeah. Which was a great show. That was the last time I saw Forbidden. That was 94. Yeah. Or 95, actually, at that okay. point. So, you know, we had a nice little run, and then uh, we did all that, and then we came home pretty motivated and pretty stoked, and, and uh, but I was also I was, I was pissed off because the industry was so lame, so we went Green, and Green was like our most caveman record. It was just so... It was still complex, but it was so straight ahead and just angry. How do you feel about it now? I like it. I, yeah. I love Green. I do too. I think Green's like one of our strongest <laughs> records in a way. In a way. You know, it's not it's not as technical, but it was still hard as fuck to play. But Tim was having a tar- hard time with that one because he wasn't quite... Tim came from a school more like Queensryche, and he liked heavy stuff, but it, it was a little too angry for him. Mm-hmm. You know, which is ironic because he turned out pretty angry later. But, but yeah, he wasn't really as connected to that album as Steve and I were. Uh, Steve Jacobs and myself were really connected in writing that, and we sat and wrote most of that together, and just everyone just came in and did their parts, and you know, yeah, and, I and mean, Tim was there, but he wasn't there. He right, wasn't all right. there mentally. He right. was, a lot of days he was just dissatisfied. Okay, which was all a shame because he's such a great dude. You know, he passed away recently. Right. Very, very Earlier sad. this year. After Green, that was 97. Taste had changed. There was a lot of angrier, more groove-oriented music happening at that time. Well, new metal started coming up. New metal was coming up. Yeah, and we weren't really a part of that. But here's what's crazy. When I, years later, because I went on, and we'll get into this later, but when we put out Green and we handed it, actually, when we handed it to the label, they didn't know what the fuck to think. Right. They were like, this is really, really angry. This is a fucking, you know, they like, what happened to the last record? I'm like, we don't write the same record twice, you know? And then uh, they popped off. Their first tour idea was to put us out with Man of War. And I, I, in my heart of hearts, I just said, that's it. Like, I just can't. If they don't understand where we're coming from, and then they put us out with Man of War as some sort of like, answer to where they think we belong i'm gonna call it quits and that's what i did okay and i kind of initiated that and i tried to separate myself from all the guys i said i'm not gonna do you know i I love you all but i'm gonna try something i don't even know what i'm gonna do next i just have to find my voice i was i was doing the different kinds of stuff i love metal i love the heavy shit i loved all that stuff but I also had discovered uh, Radiohead, which I felt like was like very expansive and grandiose. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to like, can I write beautiful parts and heavy? Like, why can't I do both? Why can't I, why can't I do that? You know. 
So I was like all just looking for anything new. And uh, both Steve and Matt would not let me go, would not let me go without taking them along. And uh, I was really hesitant. I said, I don't know, guys. You know, I kind of want to get away. And But I ended up agreeing upon that. And when that happened, that really made the other two guys feel bad. Because I should have probably stuck to my guns on that, but I don't I don't change history. You know, they can't re- rewrite it. And it actually worked out all right for me, but it made the other two guys really, really resentful. Like, it made it seem like, well, three of us are just quitting on them, as opposed to me just saying, let's just put this band to bed. Mm-hmm. It was right. like, well, three of us are going to stick together. And so we started Man Made God, and... And I suggested to Tim, well, you should join Nevermore, dude. Because those Sanctuary guys were wanting you for years. Mm-hmm. You know, they did. They always wanted Tim. And I thought he'd be perfect. Or or why don't you fucking put your name in the hat for Queensryche? Because they needed... If he would have been there after DeGarmo, right. they would have not sucked. I'm telling you straight up, they would have been amazing with Tim. Amazing. He didn't throw his name in the hat for that. And these are all things that just kind of happened. But Russ just... He played with the music with my friend... Uh, Todd started parking lot profits and right, right. was enjoying himself, you know, and and he wasn't as resentful, but Tim was very resentful, and that's what sucked because, you know, he he was mad at me because I took two thirds, three well, three fifths of forbidden. Sure, he felt excluded. And felt slighted, right? And he joined Nevermore, which was great. Yeah. And I'm sorry that didn't work out for him. I'm really sorry because that just seemed like it would have been perfect. So, what was it like feeling like kind of? I mean, did it feel like you were the last band standing, you know, by that point in 97? Testament was still was still. They were going, still going. They were really the only ones. Yeah, they were talking about uh, changing their name and right. doing different things, you know. Exodus was gone. Everyone was gone. Everyone was gone. Death Angel was the organization and the swarm. Right. Like, everything, yeah. Uh, Testament was there, so we, we got to say that they were there. But, sure. you know, you know, heavy music existed, I mean, from... When when thrash metal went down as it was, you still had Pantera, you had Sepultura, and you had the death metal movement coming. You know, you sure. had the obituaries and death was still rolling through that period. And right. just, you know, uh, it was just more extreme metals existed. So, yeah, I mean, we went on probably a little longer than uh, some people would say we should have. But I'm like I said, you can't revise history. It, it is what it was, and I think each forbidden album. Was, was a little ahead of its time at the time. And Green would be a great example of that because years later, you, you brought up groove metal. And after May May God was broken up, I would go to metal shows. And even when we were still going, I'd go to metal shows and I'd talk to the guys in the bands and, you know, uh, I'd meet the guys and say, Kill Switch Engage or mm-hmm. Slipknot. And they would point as Green mm-hmm. to Green as mm-hmm. a major influence. Slipknot, big time. Like really, like yeah, they were they were way into green. Uh, those guys seemed to really gravitate towards that album, and that whole new metal scene was pointing to that as an influence. And that would be Lamb of God, or you go you go down the line. That's like almost every one of those bands is like Green was like killer, but I I didn't know at the time. Yeah, I had no idea. I mean, where were you then? Were, you know, must be satisfying in, in some way. To, to hear that. Yeah, no, I'm not bitter, man. I, you know, I, it, it's it's all satisfying to me that anyone gives a shit about anything you do um, years after it happens. And I, if if it's not money that I've made, it's 
you know, at least I've made the, the currency of, uh, you know, respect and uh, friendship and things that have, you know, relationships that have lasted a long time. And I think that stuff's more important than anything else. It's really hard to make a living in, in this business. You can do it. But if you can maintain, like, any kind of, uh, I mean, I don't know the word to really describe it. It's, it really is respect. And, you know, then, then uh, you've done something. You know, people remember you. Like, that's, that's not nothing. You know, because you could die tomorrow, and as long if you have like a little piece of music left behind that makes people, you know, still go back and listen to it because it made them feel a certain way in that in that time of their life, then that's a gift in itself. So that's pretty much what I get out of it now yeah. when yeah. I look back at the forbidden years. Yeah, you know, and obviously we restarted it again, and everyone got excited, but not enough people showed up to make make it lucrative enough to keep everybody going. Yeah, and that's really too bad because I thought Omega Wave um, was just absolutely stellar. It's pretty, pretty damn good record. Maybe the best one we ever did, in a way. As the Bay Area Thrash Bands started regrouping, dusting themselves off, and uh, trudging forward, I thought some of it worked and some of it didn't work. Mm-hmm. And also, me personally, as a listener, you know, it, that was very much of a time for me. And some of it... I just don't want some of those some of it I don't want to revisit and some of the bands that are playing today can never for me capture what they we can't do it again. Yeah. I can't be there again in the same way. Um I didn't feel like that about Forbidden. It felt more honest and natural and immediate and um when I go back and listen to Omega Wave and then go back through the other four records, I'm just uh, astounded by the quality that was there from day one and by how well all of that has really aged. I don't think I can say that about any of the other bands and those records from the 80s. Wow. Those, those forbidden records um, feel fresh and feel as vibrant to me now as they did back then. And... For me to tell you that, that's actually saying a lot because we're a I harsh think, critic. I just think it was so personal. It's all so much a part of my DNA. That, Understandable. No, it, that, um, yeah, to go back and listen to those and think about how other albums from that era aged and the little cringes I feel when I go back and listen to them, you know, like, ugh. I get those with our albums you know, too. But I, I, there I are moments. I, not I, that everything's perfect. You know? Sure, no. But I don't get those in those. Uh, your records. Um, Maybe a little less, less cringy at times. <laughs> but there's always going to be cringes. I, no, I, I, I. Well, you're going to feel that because you were. I mean, yeah, I'm going to remember that how that got right. recorded. Right, right. I'm going to remember how hard that was to do. Right. Yeah, no, there's, there's going to be stuff. First of all, I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, like I said, the currency of of, of respect and and you know lasting music is really the greatest thing you can ask for in this business after years of doing it and everything changing so much. So, you know, I appreciate that, and and I, you know, it's funny because I can look at things and I can draw a line to this, that, and the other. You know, the fact that I came from different background. Um, 
and I wasn't a part of what everyone else was a part of, and my family was different, and everyone's family's different. But I, you know, I, I told you my story, and mm-hmm. and, I, and I think also, you know, I can see with some clarity now that my relationship with Rob, and us becoming friends again, like we are, I can see that you know that little spark that he had, I had that same spark in my own way, but he was such a I mean, he was a high quality musician, you know, at, at that point. And um, that was a great influence for me to have as a 15 year old. Uh, I, I completely understood, you know, so that's, I, it's funny because we've come around full circle and, you know, a lot of people have a lot of things to say about him. I mean, for me, I, I, the only guy I get is uh, now I get my own friend. Now I get the guy that I grew up with. All we do is laugh and you know, if we talk about old times, and yeah. it's, it's different. It's not. I'm not his employee. I don't. You know, it's, it's a little different. But and I, he works with me with with Dress the Dead. Like he's been producing our stuff. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's fucking great. You know, so. You know, I've just been lucky enough to be surrounded by some really talented people that can take a lot of what I was hoping and and conveying and make it happen with me. Because that's pretty much how Forbidden was from. Twisted and Form was a conglomeration of three guitar players writing music. Mm-hmm. You know, Glenn not as much, but he wrote some epic instrumental parts, like the middle of Eyes of Glass and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Like he wrote some some parts, some solos that were just whoo. You know, if he was, he would have been in the band a long time had he been just a little different mentality. Right. But Tim came in was much more orchestrated and focused. And then when we wrote together, I feel like that was that was a great leap and I, he was my best writing partner you know because uh, we wrote together okay I mean, we yeah. really wrote together and he was with you for a long time he was I mean, he went the, he wrote the all duration. the yeah uh, he wrote all the the ups and downs and that's you know that where his resentments lies that he he came in on the ups and then it went down i okay. feel like he just you know it's, it's just a shame that uh you know none of us in forbidden really reconnected with him here and there i know matt would see him every once in a while Paul would talk him once in a while. Tim was like, just once he became a pilot, just you know, his whole life had changed, and and yeah, and he really resented me, and it just sucks because I tried to re, we I did reconnect with him for a little while, and he was talking for a little while, and then he went away when he got ALS and didn't okay. talk again. Yeah. It's just a heartbreaker for me. That's if there's any regrets I have, at all, is that I didn't manage to crack that nut and get through to him yeah. and become the friends we were. You know, and that's the only real regret I have about any of the forbidden years or anything. It's like that's one guy that deserved uh, a little more happiness, and I wish he would have had it. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. in his last few years, a couple years, more of it anyway. I mean, he's so such a musical genius, that guy. You know, that's with Steve Smythe. You know, I mean, you know, Steve Smythe when writing with him was great because I don't think anybody knew more about music theory mm. or how to harmonize a thing with the first time he heard it because that's what he was great at. He was always good at like, if I said, I want to, you know, here's where to lay the harmony in here, he would know exactly what modes to go in. It was funny because the first time I, I, the first time I sat with down with Steve, he'd say things like, those two things aren't supposed to go together. And I'm like, but they will. And then after a while he understood <laughs> that that's just how I do it, okay. you know? Like, they'll work perfectly if you just do it. And then that's where, you know, that trust. So him and I became really good friends. 
and uh, still are to this day. And he he recorded Omega Waves. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. Fantastic solos. Just you know, we both did a ton of solos, but I, I just feel like his are so well orchestrated and so uh, they're they're not really Calvert like, but they're up there with that emotional gravitas that it pulls you mm-hmm. into like a story, and that's the thing for me. Like if you can't say something with your solos, I don't care how many notes you have. Because I don't play that many notes with mine. I try to, I pull mine back to melodies. Okay. So I'll let the other guy always be the, you know, the sweeper right. or whatever. Right. I'm not that guy. Well, they're always best when they serve a purpose and they elevate the song. That's know, the idea. And they give it that final punch. Yeah. And most yeah. of the time that works out. Well, listen, thank you for spending this time with me. And um, we will pick up on a part two, hopefully. Yeah, we should. I, I, yeah, we should. I, I think we need to to round it out because it's it's incomplete if you want to talk about Forbidden. Um, and the years between are pretty pretty important. Well, I'd like to talk about those too because this this podcast is is not so much about just one band. It's really about the musician's story. And so we got partway through your story. Um, it gets really interesting so later. We've got to pick up. When I when I start really working with Rick Rubin, that's that's okay. an interesting. Uh, All right, well we got to hear those. Yeah, stories. that was that was a trip, which we'll get into later. Yeah. Well, anyway, this was great, um, and uh, it was it was actually um, exciting for me to have this time after all these years to sit down and and talk with you. So thanks for coming. Thank you, Andrew. When I get to the bottom, I go back to the top of the slide. Where I stop.